vibration, frequency, and electricity. Look at the electric treatment menu from one of the old brochures. Options for high-powered parabolic reflector, electric ionization, and high-frequency treatment. Smedley also demonstrated the ability of etherized water to heat entire rooms in a profound way. The fernery at the hydro had a water heating system built into its walls and always maintained a constant temperature of 65 degrees. Even when the room was filled with a crowd of 350 or so visitors, the temperature never deviated. How was this kind of technology available in the 19th century and yet today we do not have access to this kind of sophisticated heating? Historians and journalists of the time would deliberately smear Smedley, casting hydropathy as pseudoscience comparable with homeopathy. Smedley had many battles with the burgeoning medical industry and after his death, the hydros were purchased and the structural alterations began. Like Tesla, Smedley played his role and successfully introduced the science of the old world to have it debunked, tarnished and sidelined forever. Hydropathy today is regarded as nothing more than a relaxing spa venture. All of its original applications of frequency and electricity have been eradicated from the practice. Smedley's role-playing allowed the controllers to justify the entire water grid system of the Peak District, successfully preventing the current 19th century and further subsequent generations from questioning its presence. The remains of the grid today are so evident. You can sit and relax to the soothing sound of water falling over the turreted regal Derwent Reservoir, which connects the entire region for its branching rivers and canals. You can stroll around shopping inside of old power stations and at old pumping stations. And in every area of the region, there are wonders waiting to be discovered. Not only in the larger towns do we find old fountains that once provided the living waters, but also in the remote villages. Tucked away, we find an old dry fountain. Look, the Lord's gift, a bittersweet joy to behold. The citizens of the old world unlock the power of electromagnetic water by studying the stars above in the firmament. The stars above taught them that the key to manipulating the ethereal energy they harnessed from the ionosphere was through water, sound waves, vibration and frequency. They honored this gift by constructing domes, by crafting star cities, cymatic magnetrons, 
and praising the Lord and Holy Spirit for the living waters they received in return. They understood the firmament as both scientists and disciples. Viewer, I am hoping the picture is starting to become clearer in your mind. And you will inevitably start to see things in a different light when pondering all of these impossible structures. It is not a coincidence that some structures like the Colosseum are also referred to as amphitheaters. Have you seen them from above? They look like speakers. Amphitheater is an interesting word. An amp is a unit of electric current and an amplifier is a device that increases signal, especially microwaves and audio. And no doubt you will start to put two and two together in terms of some of the inventions that we were allowed to play around with before they were discarded as antique in their efficiency. But time is of the essence. We could ponder examples of the old world's electromagnetic water grid system for hours. But I encourage you to get out and hunt down these structures yourself and to document them in your own time. We have to move on. We need to start... Wait, what? You want to know if these came from the old world? Yes, they did. And they are extremely important. The inevitable ticking of the clock. A deeply unsettling instrument, but unavoidable. I need to show you one more missing piece of the electromagnetic puzzle first, and then we will take a closer look at these timekeeping instruments. Come on, let's keep moving. A missing piece of the puzzle. When observing the old world structures today, there is a great sense of absence and alteration. Structures have evidently been altered and changed drastically over the last 200 or so years. And when journeying across our realm and studying these structures, a tremendous sense of absence persists. Something is missing. The concept of ethereal harvesting through these wondrous antennas is not enough. It is not concrete enough to complete the picture. Something else was once present that made the entire technological grid possible. This, of course, is the key technological component of these structures. The engine and the central mechanisms that made them function in the first place. The engines were, of course, not tokamaks. A tokamak is a crude and base instrument. It is a design of the new world. It does not belong in the old world. It would have had no place in their structures. Their sophistication and finesse would not have relied on such ugliness. 
on such primitiveness. What is undeniable, however, are the parallels between the Tokamak's fundamental octagonal form and the old world's love for the octagon. It is very likely that the octagonal formation is an essential component when generating a toroidal vortex. We see the octagon everywhere in the old world. Octagonal geometry underpins many of the structure's fundamental formations. And the peculiar octagonal structures everywhere are not by mistake. They are what they seem. Empty shells that once house something else. This sense of emptiness is everywhere and remains unexplained. So many towers and domes rise to smaller, hollow domed cupolas. Why are they hollow? Why would an earlier civilization waste so much time and energy constructing such a seemingly superfluous and useless structure? But they didn't, did they? A lot of these empty areas are always directly below the antennas. And although not all of these crucial empty structures are octagonal, most are, and they are always situated in key areas, like under central antennas, beneath domed resonators, in the center of closed, symmetrical courtyards, or detached, and just outside the bigger generators. And when reflecting on such perfectly wrought geometry, the absence is tangible. There used to be some kind of cylinder or apparatus contained within this space. Furthermore, we also find various historical relics that closely resemble the old world structural style. In these relics, we see that empty cylinders or vessels are an integral part of the object. Could these be miniature functional objects that mirror the form of the larger empty spaces we see in the old world structures? Perhaps a kind of micro household object that enabled access to the wider power grid's energy production? Did the larger structures themselves contain similar cylinders within? In many old photographs, the cupolas and octagonal spaces are already emptied. there do remain a few images and illustrations that can offer a little insight as to what was present before. In some we see a type of cylinder and in others we see some kind of orb or container. Due to the lack of images, 
it is hard to present a consistent finding. And so much has been altered, and in ways that are almost impossible to recognize. For instance, this is an 1880 illustration of the so-called completion of Cologne Cathedral. It focuses on the top of one of these spires. The wooden boards here are scaffolding. As you can see, the tops of these spires open, revealing some kind of cylinder. This is a model of the area of the spire that we see in the illustration. It was put outside of the cathedral to give tourists an idea as to just how large these spires are. An impossibility for citizens of the 19th century. The men in this illustration are not completing the final spire of the cathedral. They are removing whatever existed in the container at its apex. And it begs the question as to how many other aspects and features of these structures open in similar ways. And why do they open? What did they contain? Interestingly, it is the esoteric and occult that provide some clues. Alchemy was an arcane natural philosophy or proto-scientific tradition. Its central focus was chrysopia, or the transmutation of base metals into noble metals. From its inception in ancient Egyptian, Greek, Indian, and Middle Eastern culture, the field of alchemy, we are told, was obsessed with turning base metals into gold, and a maniacal obsession with creating the elixir of life to achieve immortality. We have all heard of the medieval Nicholas Flamel and the Philosopher's Stone. It is a field of inquiry steeped in a rich fabric of occultism, Kabbalah mysticism and magic. It wasn't until the mid-18th century that alchemy was divorced from its occultism and transformed into the burgeoning field of chemistry. But there was a smaller cult revival during the 19th century that continued into the 20th century. In 1922, a mysterious text was written by an equally mysterious figure. The Mystery of the Cathedrals by Falconelli, a French alchemist, we are told. To this day, the identity of Falconelli is still debated. No one knows who he truly was. And like many mysterious figures in the history books, his name appears to be an anagrammatic play on words. Falcon is a reference to Vulcan, the Roman god of fire, and Ellie, a reference to El, the Canaanite word for God. It is evidently a work of one or more Freemasons. But nonetheless, its alchemical reading of the wondrous and magnificent structures we call cathedrals is potently original 
and offers many insights and half-truths. And it's in Falconelli's reading of the statue of Offerus that was taken from Notre Dame Cathedral and destroyed that he begins to offer the reader some truths. As the legend goes, Offerus was a strong giant, but with a dull mind. His intentions were always good. He wanted to serve the most powerful king on earth. He was sent to the court of a mighty king to serve him. One day, the king, hearing a singer say the devil's name, made the sign of the cross with terror. Why do you make that sign? Offerus asked. Because I fear the devil, the king replied. If you fear him, you are not as powerful as him, Offerus reasoned. I want to serve the devil. And so he did, and enrolled among Satan's servants. One day, the servants met a cross by the side of the road, and the devil ordered them to turn around. Why is that? The curious Offerus asked. Because I fear the image of Christ, the devil replied. If you fear him, you are not as powerful as him, Offerus reasoned. I want to enter the service of Christ, Offerus exclaimed, and passed by the cross and went on his way. On his way, Offerus met a hermit. He asked the hermit where he could find Christ. Everywhere, the hermit replied. The hermit knew the type of dull giant he was dealing with, and he knew he would not take to prayer. So he led Offerus to a violent river and said, the poor people who have crossed this water have drowned. Stay here and carry them on your strong shoulders. If you do this, Christ will recognize you as his servant. And so he did. Offerus spent his days and nights carrying people across the river. One night, overwhelmed with fatigue, Offerus received a knock on his door. It was a child who wanted to cross. Offerus took him on his shoulders and began crossing the river. But as he reached the middle, the river became a furious torrent. The waves swelled and Offerus began to buckle. In fear of letting the child fall, Offerus uprooted a tree to lean on, but the child was becoming heavier and heavier. Offerus began to fear the child would drown. He lifted his head up and asked, Child, why do you make yourself so heavy? It seems to me that I carry the world. The child replied, Not only do you carry the world, you carry the one that made the world. I am Christ. As a reward, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in my own name, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. From now on, you will be called Christopher. Christopher walked the earth for the rest of his days to teach the word of Christ. Christopher, the one who bears Christ for the masses. In his focus on Offerus, however, 
Falconelli reveals a certain key to unlock another layer of meaning in the legend's symbolic expression. In his enigmatic manner, Falconelli writes, Christopher stands for Chris Soap, who carries the gold. From then on, we better understand the great importance of the symbol, so eloquent of St. Christopher. It is the hieroglyph of solar sulfur, Jesus, or the nascent gold, raised on mercurial waves and then carried by the clean energy of this mercury to the degree of power possessed by the elixir. Cryptic indeed, almost impenetrable prose. But let's look at this passage a little closer. Falconelli is stating that in the symbolic legend, Jesus or Christ is the nascent gold. Nascent means coming into being. The word's etymological roots stem from the concept of beginning or birth. Nascent gold here, or the solar sulfur, is not just gold, it is gold growing into its full potential. The final section of the excerpt explains why the gold is growing. Because it is being carried on the mercurial waves. The mercurial waves here refer to the metal mercury. Gold is achieving its potential because of the clean energy of mercury. Falconelli explains that mercury's color is an emblematic gray. And that explains why many of the representations of St. Christopher coat him in that color. We will return to the legend of Ophora soon. But first, let's look closer at Mercury. Mercury is of the utmost importance when it comes to understanding not only the mechanics behind the old world's technology, but also in understanding our own contemporary time in which we find ourselves traversing the enigmatic landscape of symbols that have shaped our understanding of history and our place in it. The symbol here represents the element hydrogyros. Its literal translation from the Greek means silver water. Hydrogyros has many names. It was also called quicksilver. Today it is referred to as mercury. The alchemical symbol is precisely the same symbol used in classical astrology to represent the so-called planet Mercury. Pure or native Mercury is an extremely rare element in the Earth's crust. It's primarily retrieved from cinnabar, a bright scarlet or red pigmented form of Mercury sulfide. Cinnabar is the most common source ore for refining Mercury. Both Wikipedia and World Atlas tell us that Mercury is the 66th most abundant element in Earth's crust. In its pure state, Mercury is a silver-like liquid. It is the only metal that is liquid at standard temperature and pressure. It has a freezing point of minus 38.83 degrees, 
and a boiling point of 356.73 degrees. It is an excellent conductor of electricity. Its uses are primarily electrical based. It has a primary role in fluorescent lighting. Its other uses include thermometers and dental amalgams. Mercury dissolves all metals, including gold and silver, to form amalgams. The only exception is iron. It is also used in vaccines. Governmental, medical and pharmaceutical industries declared mercury toxic in the early 21st century, gradually phasing out its use in medicine and leading some countries to completely ban the element. In some countries, it is illegal to trade mercury. Before this, mercury was a staple in certain traditional medical treatments, such as the traditional Chinese medicine. And while I do not dispute mercury's potential toxicity when injected into the body, the concerns surrounding its hazardous potential are largely overblown. All metals, especially when injected and taken in excess, are toxic. High iron, copper, zinc, and aluminium levels in the body contribute towards a whole host of disease, arguably more so than mercury. And yet the governments of our world have not banned aluminium foil. They have not stopped fortifying grains with iron oxide, and zinc and copper supplements are available to purchase with ease and without constraint on the value of dosage a person can expose themselves to with such supplements. Could there be other undisclosed reasons for demonizing and restricting mercury? Let's look a little closer at this extraordinary element's electromagnetic potential. Mercury is an electrically conductive liquid, and because of this, it has historically been applied to create light switches, electrodes in some batteries, as a gas to create fluorescent lighting. And, most interestingly, it was used, we are told, in lighthouses. According to the mainstream historical narrative, lighthouse keepers were responsible for keeping the massive lens at the top of the lighthouse spinning all day, every day. A spinning lens turning at a set speed made the light flash. They usually achieve this by setting the lens on wheels or bearings attached to clockworks that the keeper would periodically wind. In the late 19th century, some keepers, sick to death with having to keep winding the clockwork, began floating their lenses in liquid mercury. The lens's metal base spun more easily in the mercury, which helped the light rotate faster with less frequent winding. It is a practice still in use in some lighthouses today. It is evident from its structure that the lighthouse's sole function was not just to light the way for ships. It was either one of its functions among many others, or just an inherited act of repurposement. Many lighthouses are constructed 
in the familiar octagonal structure. Many have the red and white stripes, indicative of power stations. Many still have their antennas, and they were situated right next to the water. It is obvious that they had a similar role as many of the old world's power stations. We find repurposed and rebranded all across our realm. Lindau Lighthouse in Germany is a fascinating example. We see all the familiar dentils and holes, suggestive of vibration and frequency manipulation. We see the octagonal cupola. They have replaced the original antenna with New World junk, and oddly, the structure has a clock. And although those of the old world made the most advanced clocks ever seen, the presence of a clock face here appears superfluous. Perhaps the abundance of clock faces we see on so many of the old world structures and towers are actually repurposed steam gauges that used to be present to measure the pressure of the energetic water. The intricate and complex design of these lighthouses would have been a feat of engineering for those of the 19th century and their predecessors, unless those that came before the 19th century were technologically advanced which of course they were. Mercury's role in lens rotation is a subtle example of repurposement. It is very likely that the complex apparatus at the top of these lighthouses were modified as illuminated lenses during the Great Reset. And what existed before operated to extract ethereal energy. For most of the 19th century, gas and oil burners were used as sources of light in these structures. And yet look at the size of some of these lenses. Look at the complexity of the designs. All to house light running on gas and oil? I don't think so. The history of the lighthouse is of utmost importance because it won provides evidence of mercury being present in some kind of apparatus directly located in a cupola, the very spot we see emptied on so many structures today. And two, because mercury's presence here was to enable the lenses to spin and rotate more easily. And that's very interesting, because look what happens when you apply magnetism and electricity to Mercury. It rotates and creates a vortex, either clockwise or anti-clockwise, depending on the application of the current. A vortex, as you know, is an integral expression of a toroidal field. There are three main types of vortexes, electrical, magnetic, and electromagnetic. In addition to Mercury's electromagnetic potential and its susceptibility to form a vortex 
when under the influence of Curran. The silver water also has another unrecognized application. Look. No wonder mercury is demonized and illegal. As you can see, mercury is able to provide even a homemade television antenna with the ability to convert radio frequency alternating currents to extract a television signal. Antennas can be designed to transmit and receive electromagnetic waves in all directions equally. And you could hypothesize that the orbs on the old world's antennas contained mercury. But again, it is no secret that mercury amalgamates with gold and other metals. An amalgam is an alloy of mercury and another metal. Mercury strongly amalgamates with gold, copper, silver, and many other metals. The only common exception is iron. The orbs could not have contained mercury because, as you saw, mercury would have scavenged the gold, silver, and copper and amalgamated with the metals. We do not see any evidence of that here. They function strictly as aerial antennas. But, if all of these structures contain some type of engine or apparatus, similar to the Fresnel lenses we see in lighthouses, with mercury continually forming a vortex, then we would have a setup that enabled the antennas to extract ethereal energy and transmit strong electromagnetic signals. Just as Falconelli reveals in his reading of St. Christopher, it was the mercury that enabled the gold to achieve its potential. It is highly likely that the absent cylinders, vessels and containers that were removed from these structures and which were usually present within the octagonal geometric structures contained mercury. And it raises the question, if some lighthouses are still running their lenses off of mercury today, wouldn't they still extract ethereal energy? No, they would not. And once again, Falconelli tells us why. As Falconelli states elsewhere in the mystery of the cathedrals, the dissolution of sulfur, or in other words, its absorption by mercury, provided the pretext for very different emblems. But the resulting body, homogeneous and perfectly prepared, retains the name philosophical mercury. It is the first class matter or compound which requires only a gradual cooking process to transform itself first into red sulfur, then into elixir, and then, in the third time, into the universal medicine. As Falconelli makes clear, transforming pure mercury into a red sulfurous state is the first step. And as mentioned previously, Cinnabar, or mercury sulfide, is red. And as we see here 
on representations of St. Christopher's robes. He wears one half grey to indicate mercury and another half red, which is indicative of the red sulphur. It is the transformed state of mercury that allows the gold, here represented as Christ, to achieve its full potential, or to keep it consistent with the legend, to reach the masses. What Falconelli is actually telling us is that in able to distribute this clean electromagnetic energy via golden orbed finials or antennas, a special kind of mercury had to be present. This is what was contained within the vessels and engines. And it is likely that it was this unique mercury that enabled the extraction of the ethereal energy from above in the first place. Perhaps it is just a coincidence, if you believe in such a thing, but it is interesting that many of the smaller vessel-like relics we see have markings inside the containers that are red. Perhaps a homage to the substance they once contained. Now I know what you want to say. Come on, you are turning a molehill into a mountain. You're basing this off a few passages from the ramblings of a Masonic deceiver. How do we really know that those of the old world were the alchemists of old and that mercury was central to their advanced technology? Bear with me. I will expose this so-called Falconelli for the Masonic deceiver he is further down the line. But, like I said before, there are many half-truths here that we can extract. And you must ask, why this cryptic text about the mystery of the cathedrals focuses primarily on explaining the structures and their symbolism in alchemical terms. For you see, St. Christopher is not the only symbolic expression of Mercury and Gold's relationship. Like with their adoration of sound and water, the Old World expressed this alchemical relationship in many symbols. In fact, the symbols were so prevalent that the enemy had to appropriate them and use them as weapons of control and deceit, otherwise the Great Reset of the 19th century would have failed. The enemy's genius stems from its appropriation, redesignation, and deliberate obscuring of symbols, to the point where tracing the history and true meaning of one symbol in particular becomes a monumental feat. The abundance of lions and eagles we see throughout the old world, primarily in the form of statues, relates to the elements of gold and mercury. As Falconelli states, the lion is the sign of gold. It represents a terrestrial and fixed force, while the eagle represents the airy and volatile force, or the mercury. 
When the two champions come together, they attack, repel, and tear each other apart with energy until the antagonists become one body, the animated Mercury. The fusion of the fixed gold and the volatile Mercury create the griffin, in which the lion or the gold represented the fixed, basic part of the compound, which in contact with the adverse volatility loses the best part of itself. The part that has characterized its shape, that is, in hieroglyphic language, the head. And like the lion and eagle, we see the griffin everywhere in the old world. Like St. Christopher, the griffin is symbolic of the alchemical concoction and combination of mercury and gold that powered the old world's technology. The symbolic association of animals and beasts with alchemy has been eradicated from history, primarily due to the appropriation of these animals as heraldic symbols of royalty and nobility. These are the animals that adorn national imperial seals. As we see attributed to the Roman Empire, the British Imperial Empire, the United States, and so on. An act of post-colonial domination over the old world. The appropriation of its symbolism and eradication of its history through falsified narrative. Furthermore, the chemical, alchemical, and cosmological symbol used to represent Mercury is immediately recognizable for its conflation of two of the most widely used symbols throughout history and culture. That is, the cross and the crescent moon. It is openly acknowledged that at one point, all religious symbolism predated its current religious use and application and belonged to another culture and represented something different during different historical eras. But just because this is openly declared does not mean it makes any sense. Were our historical ancestors and their own historical ancestors really that uninspired that they needed to recycle already established symbols, or are we not being told the truth once again? The conflation of Christian and Islamic symbolism and culture is so prevalent across our realm that upon closer inspection, it begins to appear quite absurd. If we are to believe the official historical narrative, that is. If we believe the narrative of the Crusades and Ottoman Habsburg Wars, of the continual warring between West and East, then the presence of the Crescent symbolism displayed on many so-called medieval European coats of arms and crests 
indeed makes no sense. Perhaps this is just more cultural appropriation. But the narrative becomes very unconvincing when we turn our attention to the structures themselves. Why was the Hagia Sophia Holy Grand Mosque originally constructed as the Church of Hagia Sophia by the so-called Roman Empire? It remained a church, we are told, for almost a thousand years. Its four minarets were constructed after the Ottoman Empire took the region. But look at its original design. It does not resemble a traditional cathedral whatsoever. And we see this over and over again. The Cathedral of Cordoba in Spain, originally erected as a mosque in the 8th century and then converted to a cathedral in the 13th century. We see right here the conflation of both styles of East and West. Interestingly, the structure also features the red and white striped arches, indicative of power stations that we find throughout so many impossible structures. And even without their unconvincing narratives of structures passing between cultures, we still see the presence of both styles in many structures that do not have this narrative attached to them. St. Mark's Basilica and the Doge's Palace in Venice look extremely Eastern, as does the Brighton Pavilion in England. These structures were impossible for all of those, East and West, in the official narrative, unless they had advanced technology, which the narrative tells us they did not. The official narrative tells us tales of architects being inspired and influenced by the structures of East and West alike. But remember, at the time these structures were built, the people didn't have accessible transportation. Journeying between continents and countries took weeks, and they had no cameras to document the structures in order to be able to replicate them with such accuracy in the first place. Why don't synagogues have their own unique particular style, like mosques and cathedrals? We see this fusion of architectural style everywhere. We see water pumping stations that resemble cathedrals. We see water towers that resemble castle turrets. We see cathedrals that also resemble official government buildings. All these structures belong to one whole unified civilization. That's why we find so many ruined cathedrals in the Middle East. They were destroyed and ruined during the Great Reset and after to solidify the falsified narrative. That's why we see the crescent moon in old 19th century photographs in areas it should not be. This is Brazil. Look closer. Even today, Brazil's Muslim population comprises a total of 1% of the country. So why is this crescent present at the top of one of these antennas in the 19th century? Why is it present in San Francisco in 1905? Why do we see many structural antennas 
composed of both the cross and crescent moon. In many of the old photographs, we see many structures without any religious symbolism, but just standard antennas. And what about all the unusual antennas we see? Many of the antennas functioned as symmetrical instruments to enhance ether extraction and to transmit energy to other antennas. They were never signs of different religious factions in the old world. They were most likely later designated these meanings to fracture the unification of the old world and its understanding of God. Even the mainstream narrative admits that it was not until the 19th century that the crescent moon even became associated with the Ottoman Empire. And it wasn't until 1950 that the symbol became the emblem of Islam. The symbols of the crescent and cross are much more complex than most realize. In the context of the antennas, they are likely a symbolic homage to the alchemical mercury that made them function in the first place. But the crescent and cross also have broader implications that are related to the holy, energetic and ethereal workings of our realm. We will be returning to these symbols later. This is not meant to discredit the meaning of these symbols today. Symbols evolve over time, but this evolution was carefully orchestrated by our controllers. It is also not to discredit God. And this point is crucial. I understand that much of this may trigger some people, but it is imperative to understand the religion, in an institutional sense, was created by our controllers as a means of control. Many religious organizations today are corrupt and use religion as a front when their true allegiance lies with the psychopathic controllers of our realm. Religion was an essential tool of deception to justify the old world's infrastructure. Religion is not synonymous with an understanding of God, faith and prayer. And it is also not to discredit the life of the Son of God. No, and this is crucial, and you will see why later in our journey. And in many a sense, this is what Christ tried to teach people, to see through the deception and manipulation. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which is in secret. You see, the scriptures are more accurate than most understand. They are at once historical accounts, instruction manuals for living, and sacred texts of prophecy. There are a handful of texts that are so important that the enemy has been desperately trying to steer people away from them in recent times. And you will see why this is of utmost importance later in our journey. Stay with me, the best is yet to come. And it doesn't end there. 
The basis for the alchemical symbol of Mercury, we are told, was a caduceus. And we see the caduceus throughout the remains of the old world. Another symbol appropriated by the enemy, adorned in many coat of arms and adopted by centralized, corrupted medical industries that have been responsible for mass crimes against humanity that continues today. It is not a coincidence that the same mercury that the symbol represented is injected into humans via vaccines to disrupt their entire methylation cycle resulting in widespread autism and a whole host of neurological and metabolic disorders. The Caduceus illustrates clearly how both Roman and ancient Greek mythology serve the enemy as a tool of deception. In Roman mythology, the Caduceus staff was carried in the left hand of the god Mercury. The Roman Mercury was a god of financial gain, commerce, communication and messages. In Greek mythology, the staff is carried by Hermes. Hermes was a god of travelers, merchants and commerce. The fabricated mythologies allowed the enemy to obscure the Caduceus's true association with the elemental Mercury, while also permitting them the usual sick, hiding in plain sight mocking ritual by linking their medical industries with the god of finance. Hi, this is Mike Morris, owner of Warriors Revolution Tactical in Longmont. At Warriors Revolution, we have the largest selection of tactical gear and ammo in northern Colorado. But what many people may not know is that we now sell firearms. And even despite the recent run on firearms and ammunition, we have plenty of product in the store, including ARs, AKs, Glocks, SIGs, HK, and more. And don't forget all the bulk ammunition at the best prices in town. Need to do a private firearms transfer? We can do that, too. I am a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and our team is made up of veterans and security experts, not a bunch of salesmen. Our team is trained and fought with much of the actual equipment we sell. And one thing you should know is that we support the foundations and principles this great country was founded upon. So if you need tactical gear, ammo, firearms, AR parts or upgrades, and even survival accessories, stop by and visit us on Ken Pratt Boulevard and Bowen Street in Longmont, or visit warriorsrevolution.com. That's warriorsrevolution.com. Hi, it's Matt from Unfair Advantage Defense Solutions. Give me a call at 970-578-9821. No matter your skill level, I can create a course using a state-of-the-art firearms training simulator that's currently in use by law enforcement and military personnel. You don't have to use any of your ammo, and I bring the training to you. I have over 900 interactive training simulations, as well as shooting competitions and skill builders. So whether you're looking to protect yourself and family, if your church security team is looking to train, or you and your friends want to get together for some competitive fun, give Unfair Advantage Defense Solutions a call at 970-578-9821. I am Omnicron.